Well, tonight I wanted to uh, go along with our theme this month, which has been on the Holy Spirit and the harvest. And uh, this is a lesson I taught maybe several years ago, maybe four or five years ago. And it's about the fact that we need the Holy Spirit to make this the dwelling place. The Bible says without his spirit, we are what? None of his. And we have to understand how that came to be, that we started, mankind started in the Garden of Eden in a close relationship with God. And yet today, man has, has gone downhill, so to speak. Gone downhill. So we're going to look at that tonight. Uh, and this lesson is called The Dwelling Place. And in Hebrew, the, the definite article is H-A or Ha, Hamikdash. And again, our series this month has been on the gardener and the harvest, right? The harvest seasons. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And that was really the first dwelling place. You know, we think of a temple or a tabernacle or a church as a place where we do what? We come to meet God, to worship. But the first meeting place that men and women met God was actually the Garden of Eden. In other words, you could view it as a temple. It was a place where God communed with his people. And so that was the first place. I, I preached a message a few weeks ago about the thief on the cross and his nine words. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And what did Jesus say to him? Today. Today thou wilt be with me in paradise. Our ultimate destination is back to the garden. Did you know that? It's to be in a communion and in a dwelling place with, the, with God Almighty. That's where we're headed. So we're going to look at that. The first dwelling place was Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And the Bible tells us that it was a place where they would speak. I mean, communication can be um, by sight, but the most uh, informative communication is by word. Word. And that's what the Bible indicates. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the cool garden, the cool of the day. Now, that may seem strange. How can you hear a voice walking? I don't know if I know the full answer to that, but it was something that they understood and recognized. They could tell when it was time to communicate with God. As I've said many times, when they were in the garden, what could their communication have been with God about? It couldn't have been about wanting stuff. They had every single thing that they could possibly want. In fact, I believe they weren't clothed like we're clothed. I believe they were clothed with the Shekinah glory of God. You know, they were the only ones who really understood what it is to lose that and, and, and uh, lose what it was to be just like Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when, when he transfigured. I believe that that was how Adam and Eve looked before they sinned. They were covered with the glory of God. And so their communication with God could only have been thanksgiving. Lord, what a beautiful garden you have, you have created for us. We just saw some new animals, Lord. What shall we name them? Can you imagine all their communication must have been thanksgiving? I heard a preacher said that 80% of our prayer should be thanksgiving. 
But you know that that convicts me because I can tell you 80% of my prayer is not thanksgiving. Usually we come to the Lord with a list. Lord, we want you to do this. We want you to do that. But instead of that, because the Bible says he already knows. But what we should be doing is just thanking him. Lord, I know you've got this situation. I know you understand what I'm going through. Amen. So God created this beautiful dwelling place for mankind to meet with him. And the Bible gives us some geographic and spiritual descriptions of that place. It says, and a river went out of Eden. Now, I know we call it the Garden of Eden, but to be accurate, what does the Bible say about this garden? It was actually east of Eden, right? That's what it says, and the Lord planted a garden in the east of Eden. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four different streams. So the Bible is giving us a description of this place. Now, as I've said before, for a river to flow, what do you need the geography of the landscape to be? It's got to go from high to low. If it's flat, you can't get a river to flow. So it tells us something about the geography of that garden, that there was a high place from which the water flowed. And as it flowed down, it split into four places in Genesis um, 2.10, it tells us that. But here is something interesting that in Jeremiah gives us a hint going right back. It says, a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. That scripture, in my view, is pointing back to the fact that the Garden of Eden, where we met God, was a sanctuary. Wherever you meet God is a temple. Wherever you, that's why you can close your room door and pray. And if you meet God, that becomes your sanctuary. But the Bible indicates that the Garden of Eden was not just a garden. It was a place, a meeting place. And we saw that so many times in scripture. On his resurrection, as I taught on Sunday, Mary went to the garden. And she was the first one there and looked inside the the tomb and it was empty. And she was so distressed But then who did she meet? The gardener. Isn't it something that there are certain places that God always shows up? Always shows up. And so the scripture tells us that this was a sanctuary. This was a meeting place. Then the Bible tells us about these four rivers that went from there. The first one, its name is Pison. And and in the Hebrew, it means increase. The second one was called Gion. And it means bursting forth. The third one is called Hidekel, and it means rapid. And the fourth one is called Euphrates, which means fruitfulness. Now, of those four rivers, two of them are still in existence today. And, of course, both of them are in the what we call today the Middle East. So that gives us a clue to where the garden, at least physically, was located. But we'll come back to that. As I said, we are told that the rivers flowed into Eden. So we're knowing it's coming from somewhere high up. And that's what the Bible indicates that this place, dwelling place of God, was a high place. Psalms 48 verse 2 says, beautiful for situation. It's translated situation, but really in the Hebrew, it's elevation. Beautiful for height. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. It's telling us something about about Mount Zion is telling us something about 
this sanctuary place because remember, the garden was planted east of Eden and a river flowed down into Eden. And so many people have tried to locate where the Garden of Eden is. Now, does the Bible give us an, an understanding? And I, I do believe it does. As I said, two of the rivers don't exist anymore. But what they have found when they went up into space and they had these satellites, they've been able to see that there was a river that flowed from Jerusalem all the way into the Dead Sea now. But of course, it's called the Dead Sea because nothing flows out of it. And then in from the Dead Sea down into the Red Sea. And the other two rivers, the Hiddekel and the Euphrates, are both in, start in Iran and Persia. And then they've also saw that there was a connection all the way to Jerusalem. And we can tell from the Bible, too, that the Garden of Eden must have been located somewhere in the Promised Land because when Abraham and his nephew Lot were journeying from, from uh, Babylon, Ur of the Chaldees, down into Canaan, they passed somewhere. Look what, what the Scripture says in Genesis 13.10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you come up to Zor. Zor was one of the cities that was on the surrounding the Dead Sea. So what it seems to indicate is as Abraham and Lot were coming down through Canaan, they passed somewhere that they recognized was the garden. The other thing that the scripture tells us, and why I'm going into such detail, is because that's where we're going back. In Revelation, it tells us that's where we're going back. To him will I give the right to eat of the tree of life. Where is the tree of life? It's in the garden of God. Now that garden is, was both physical, but it's also supernatural to some extent. Amen. In, uh, in Ezekiel 28, when he was speaking about Satan, he wanted to take over that place. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation. So there is a physical place, but there is a spiritual place. And I, I'm, I've got about 50 slides to get through, so I'm going to be going a little faster than normal tonight because I'm excited about what God's plan lays out for us. I'm talking about the dwelling place. That when man sinned, he lost that spiritual covering and had to leave that garden. But God had a plan, the Bible says, from the foundation of the earth to provide a dwelling place to get us back into communication, into communion with him. This mount of the congregation, it's, it's written throughout the Old Testament. It's the same mount that's called Mount Moriah where Abraham was told to go and do what? Sacrifice his son. God was setting up a model to be fulfilled many thousands of years later. God told Abraham, take your only son. Now, did Abraham only have one son? No. But God was making a point that Paul brings out that he was the son of promise. He was the son of promise. So God said to him, take now thine only son whom thou lovest. And I want you to go three days journey. I want you to go to this mountain. And I want you to offer him up there for a sacrifice. Now what, what, a, what a, a command. Now most of us 
would have uh, said, well, I'm going to ask somebody else. I'm going to talk to somebody else about this. But from scripture, it, it seems to be that Abraham didn't tell anyone else. Sometimes when God gives you something that's just for you, you got to keep it just for you. Because if you start telling other people, they're going to tell you you're crazy, it can't be done, and they'll talk you out of it. Imagine if he had told his wife, God told me. <laughs> I don't even know how he would begin that conversation, right? The one that I've waited till I was six, 19, 90 and nine years, and now you're telling me what? Now you're telling me what? What kind of God is this? Abraham didn't tell anyone what God told him. And God set up the model perfectly. The Bible tells us that he took three, two other young men with Isaac, and then one donkey is only mentioned. Do you understand? It, it's modeling what happened to Jesus. One donkey. Three days in, into Jerusalem, and on the third day was going to be crucified. And Isaac was not a baby. He was probably a teenager of, of, a, of, of 17. And he says, Dad, we, we, we have the fire. I see the wood. But where is the sacrifice? And I think it's this statement that Abraham next says is why God loved him so much. What did he say? The Lord himself prophetically will provide himself the sacrifice. In, in Romans, Paul says that, that uh, God looked at Abraham and, and he, he looked at his son and as if he was already dead. He, he offered him, in, so to speak. And setting up that model on that same mountain that 2,000 years later, our Heavenly Father came down and offered himself. It is where Jesus also cursed the fig tree. It was located on that same... It's the same place when he came into Jerusalem, this Mount Zion, the physical Mount Zion, where he looked and wept over Jerusalem. It's the route he came from Bethany into the city. It is also the place where it was forbidden for them to build any houses, but it became a great cemetery because all of the Jews knew from the Old Testament that there was supposed to be a resurrection happening there. It's also the place, and you've been hearing this in the news, where they would offer, kill the the red heifer, which was the only uh, animal that they could use, the, uh, the ashes. They would kill the red heifer, offer it on the altar, and take the ashes for purification. Because in the news uh, this week, they, they uh, sent five red heifers to, to Israel, and it was used to dedicate the temple. Um, it's also the place, Scripture indicates, from which the nations are to be judged. Mount Zion is in Scripture as his footstool. I'm talking about the dwelling place. I'm talking about the dwelling place. Uh, the tradition says it's also the place where Jacob slept and saw the ladder and called the place Bethel, the house of God. It's also, tradition says, where Melchizedek, because he was king of where? Jerusalem. Mount Olives is in Jerusalem and, and, and blessed Abraham. But of course, because of man's sin, they lost this communication in the garden and they had to leave. They didn't leave because God wanted it that way. They had to leave because their presence could not stand in, in, in front of a holy God. 
They had lost that Shekinah covering and they had to leave the garden and God placed cherubim. But it was always God's plan to try and build back a relationship. So the second dwelling place was, of course, the tabernacle. God told Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell. See, God has always wanted to dwell with us. Did you know that? Because absolutely, truly, we were created to be his children. We, I don't know if we really understand what that means. Genesis tells us we were created in his image and in, in his likeness. So that shows you how far we have fallen. But we were created in his image and in his likeness. And so God's plan of redemption has been a progressive plan to bring us back into communication. Well, the second dwelling place was this tabernacle made of skins and had four layers on the, on the tabernacle. And it had uh, skins on the outside and the outer part was called, anyone remember what the outer part was called? Outer court. And as you came in through the entrance, what was in the outer court? The laver and the brazen altar where all of the sacrifices were offered. And then you went through the next veil into the most holy place. And on your left would have been the candlestick. On your right was the table of showbread, the bread of his presence. And then right in front of you by the curtain was the altar of incense. And then the curtain with the cherubim. But here's the problem with that dwelling place. Only Levites, only Levites, only one in 12 of the children of Israel could come anywhere close. All they could do was meet Moses at the, it says, it calls it the tent of meeting, at the door of the tent of meeting. They had no deep relationship with God. In fact, even when the law was given, Moses had to rope it off and keep them away because they could not come up before the presence of God. God's dwelling place was still far away. We had to come with sacrifices with turtle doves and sheep and goats. But God had started the plan. The Bible says that the law was our schoolmaster to do what? To bring us to Christ. What the law was showing is that if you think you can do it by your own self, have at it. Here it is. The Jews had 613 commandments, mitzvahs. 365 thou shalt not. And 364, I believe, thou shalt. And that's why they had those little tassels on their, on their prayer shawls. They had 630 of them, each one representing a commandment. But it was impossible for man to do it, to keep it. Someone was asking me the other day about the Sabbath. And I said, no man ever kept the Sabbath. Even today, the people who say they're keeping the Sabbath, they jump in their cars. They don't do a Sabbath day's journey, which is only as far as you could walk. But the people of God who believe, the Bible said, have entered into his rest. We are only the, we are the true Sabbath keepers because we enter into his rest. We enter into God's Sabbath by faith. It says those that have believed have entered into rest. But God's plan was for for a dwelling place. And you know that they, the, the trouble with the tabernacle was it wasn't permanent. It moved around with Israel. So even after they came into the promised land, 
for many, many years, there was just this tent. There was just this tabernacle. But the heart of the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant, this beautiful thing that God inspired the, the artisans to make, to represent his presence. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And here's what God said, and I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. The funny thing about the tabernacle and the fact there was nowhere to sit down. The priests never got to sit down. They had to minister standing up. There was one seat called the mercy seat, but that wasn't for any human being to sit down in. No, that was reserved. And of course, on top were the, were the emblems of the cherubim covering over with their wings pointed to each other. And inside the ark were... God had told him to put three things, a golden vase or vase with the pieces of bread, the manna, the rod, the almond rod that Aaron had used, and what was the last thing? The law. And once a year, which is coming up, on Sunday at sunset it will be the Feast of Trumpets, and ten days later it's going to be Yom Kippur. Day of Atonement. Only on the Day of Atonement could someone come close, anywhere close to the presence of God. And if I was high priest, I don't think I would want that job either. I wonder how many high priests died. Bible doesn't tell us that. But what the high priest had to do, he had to seclude himself seven days before so that no one could touch him because he could not appear before God defiled in any way. He had to separate himself from his family. He had to ensconce himself, so to speak, inside the tabernacle and not leave. And on the Day of Atonement, he would take off all those beautiful garments, the mitre, the ephod, the, the breastplate, and put on just some plain white linen garments after he had gone through a, a ritual baptism. Then I think I described the, the ceremony Sunday. He would have to first kill a bull, for his own sins and take that blood all the way in. And they had the rope around his, his, his waist and the bells around his hem. And all Israel was listening. I can imagine that apart from some babies, there was millions of people listening. Could have heard a pin drop. They wanted to know if the dwelling place of God, their Jehovah, was going to accept the presence and the offering that was going to be presented by the high priest. And if he, if he went in and came out, I'm sure there was a shout. Because he then came out and he pronounced the name of God upon the people. All of this is detailed in Exodus. God tells him precisely how to do this. Then the ceremony would begin in earnest and he would take the two goats and lay his hand upon the what's called the scapegoat, and declare all the sins of Israel upon this goat. You know what God was doing? He was showing what he was going to do. In Isaiah 53, it said, it, God, it pleased God. It pleased God that, all, that he bore our iniquity. He became that goat. And the, the high priest would put his hands upon that goat and declare him the sin offering for the whole nation. And then the other goat was sacrificed and its blood taken 
all the way in. Now, this is how we know what's happening in Revelation because the only time blood was taken all the way in and sprinkled on the ark was once a year on the Day of Atonement. So that's how we know that what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 4 is the atonement ceremony. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But all of this was to bring us back to God because the Bible says in Hebrews, without the the shedding of blood, there is what? No remission of sins. And so Israel every year had to repeat this ceremony. And that's as close as they could get to the dwelling place of God was this tent. In Exodus 29.37, here it is, Seven days thou shalt make an atonement for the altar and sanctify it, and it shall be an altar most holy. Whosoever touches that altar shall be holy, and I will sanctify the tabernacle. I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priest's office, and thou shalt sanctify them, and they may be most holy. Whosoever toucheth them shall be holy. And this went on for a few hundred years once they got back into the land of Canaan. But finally, King David came and he said, You know what? I think we, we, it's so bad that I'm building myself a palace and the dwelling place of God is still in a tent. And the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And you know the story that he wanted to bring the ark up and to build, build the temple, but God said, no, you can't do it. You, you've shed too much blood, but your son will do it. Then he called for Solomon his son and charged him to build an house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, my son, as for me, it was in my mind to build an house unto the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, thou hast shed blood, abundantly and has made great wars thou shalt not build an house unto my name because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight behold a son shall be born to thee who shall be a man of rest and I will give him rest from all his enemies round about for his name shall be Solomon and I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days and he shall build an house for my name And he shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So in seven years, they built what I would believe would be the greatest human building ever built. They built this thing without using any hammers or saws or anything on the site. Everything had to be done off-site. And everything had to be just fitted together perfectly. Can you imagine that? How difficult that must have been? But they built this beautiful edifice and every single thing inside of it was overlaid with pure gold. In fact, if you read uh, about Solomon and his reign, God blessed him so much that they threw away silver. You know, like how we eat on plastic plates, (laughs) paper plates, and you you don't wash it, you throw it away? That's how they did with silver. Solomon, the Bible says, received 25 tons of gold every year of his reign. He reigned for 40 years. Gold is, I don't know, $1,800 an ounce. He received 25 tons of gold every year of his reign. The Bible says he made silver like 
you know, it wasn't anything. Everything that he ate off was, was gold. And you know why? Because he didn't ask for it. He asked God for wisdom. You know, when you ask the right question, God will give you that plus all the other things. Amen. But this was the third dwelling place where Solomon prayed this very great prayer. There's many great prayers in the Bible, but this prayer that Solomon prayed, I want to read a little bit for you. It says, Now then, O Lord God of Israel. This was at the dedication of the, temp- of the temple. Let thy word be verified which thou hast spoken unto thy servant David. Solomon in his prayer asked the question, but will God in very deed dwell with men? Is it possible that God can dwell with men? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens. He's saying the atmosphere and the heaven can't hold you, can't contain thee. How much less this house which I have built. And the truth is, there is no man-made house that God can dwell in. That's why he has to make us. When we try and make ourselves, it don't work. But his prayer was such an awesome prayer. He says, have respect therefore to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken, to listen unto the cry and the prayer which thy servant prayeth. That thine eyes may be open unto this house day and night. Upon the place whereof thou hast said thou wouldest put thy name there. To hearken unto the prayer which thy servant prayeth towards this place. You know many many years later Daniel who was in Babylon. That's what he did. He remembered the prayer of Solomon. That if anyone prayed towards that place. Even though it didn't exist at that time. So three times a day he would open his windows. And he would kneel and he would pray. And claim the promise that is the answer to this prayer. This was, this was Solomon's request. Moreover, concerning the stranger, which is not of thy people, Israel. He's saying, it doesn't matter if they're not even Jews. Which is not of thy people, Israel. But is come from a far country for thy great name's sake. And thy mighty hand, that, 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 and, thy, thy, and thy stretched out arm. If they come... If they come and pray in this house, then hear thou from the heavens, even from thy dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calleth to thee for, that all the people of the earth may know thy name and fear thee, as doth thy people Israel, that they know that this house which I have built is called by thy name. This house has got to be called by his name. And the, 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 the prayer is amazing, but of course we all know God's answer to the prayer, right? As when he finished praying, now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down and consumed the burnt offerings. They, 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 they sacrificed over 120,000 sheep. It was a seven-day event. It took thousands of priests to do it. And consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the house. This became the third dwelling place on earth where God's manifestation of his presence to his people 
could be seen. In the desert, when they had the tabernacle at night, there was a pillar of fire. During the day, there was a cloud that was a manifestation of the, of the presence of God. So this temple became the third dwelling place. And of course, we all know this scripture, which was God's reply. After Solomon had prayed such a great prayer, God replied to him, If my people, which are called by my name, shall what? Humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I absolutely believe that prayer is still valid today. If my people that are called by my name, when you went down in that water, in that baptism, you took on his name. You became not your own. You committed your life to being his. And so you have the right, as Jesus told, as Paul said, you can call him Abba. If my people which are called by my name shall humble them. So this was God's reply to Solomon. And as you know, within a few short years, Solomon let his, you know, flesh, I have to say, get the better of him. And even though he knew the truth, he knew the truth, he was smart, he was what he knew these other gods were not gods, but for political and other reasons, he allowed the, the women he married to build temples to these false gods. And then, of course, his son messed up and split the temple, split the kingdom, I should say. And this went on all the way down to the last king, 400 and something years later. God was so merciful to Israel. But finally, after 490 years, judgment came. And the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC came and destroyed the temple. God allowed it. God allowed it. But here is something interesting that the Bible tells us about this. It says, And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king, and of all his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar came, and he took everything he found in the temple. All the treasures, all the golden vessels, all of the things that they used to do the sacrifices. And they burnt the house of the Lord the house of God and break down the wall of Jerusalem and burn all the palaces thereof with fire and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof and took it all to Babylon. So now Israel had no dwelling place. There was no spot that represented God's presence. All Daniel could do was open his window and aim towards where Jerusalem was. Even though there was not a temple he still went through and prayed. The Bible speaks about this and prophesies that the glory would depart in Second Kings and in. Um, you got a question, Sister Carol? Um, they didn't take the ark, I was getting to that. What the Bible says is he took everything that he found. He took everything he could find, but of course, Scripture lets us know. He couldn't find the ark. He couldn't find the ark. We'll get to that. 
We're told in Jeremiah 28, 3 that everything, but God made a prophecy. God through the prophet Jeremiah made a prophecy and said that everything that was taken would be returned. We're told in Jeremiah 28, 3 that everything taken to Babylon from the house of the Lord would be returned. Now Nebuchadnezzar was, maybe because of Daniel's influence, he took all of the stuff but he never messed with it. He put it in his storehouse, but he never messed with it. But his grandson, Nabonidus, decided he was going to have a party. And he decided he was going to use all of the things that belonged to God for his party. And you know the story of the handwriting on the wall that came. But the Bible tells us that everything that was going to be taken would have to be brought back. In Jeremiah 28.3. But when they rebuilt the temple. The Ark of the Covenant was not there. Jeremiah 3.16. And the reason is because God prophesied or told them that this would happen. And it shall come to pass when he be multiplied and increased in the land in those days, saith the Lord. They shall say no more the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Neither shall it come to mind. Neither shall they remember it. Neither shall they visit it. Neither shall that be done anymore. You know what was happening? God had a plan. Because the ark of the covenant and the law was good. But it was only good for a few people. Only the Levites could even come into the presence even close. If you were a Gentile, the farthest you could come was you could see the gate. (laughs) That's all you could come. But that was not God's wish. He wanted relationship. In fact, his whole plan is to get us back to the garden. So after they were released, they went back into Jerusalem. And of course, they rebuilt the temple. But of course, it wasn't anything as close to the original temple. In fact, the, the young people who saw this temple, they were all happy and rejoicing. But the Bible tells us the old people, they wept. Because they realized this was nothing compared to the first. And also, the truth be told, there wasn't the real ark in there anymore. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with the trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David of the king, a king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because he is good. For his mercy endureth forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and the chief of the fathers who were ancient men, old men, probably in their 90s, they would have had to have been in their 90s, who had seen the first house. When the foundation of this house was laid, before their eyes wept with a loud voice. And many shouted aloud for joy. Because they remembered what the original looked like. And then we go into what we call the silent period where after the book, the last book in the Bible, God is silent. Is silent for 400 years. And I got the question up there, why was the temple of Ezra and even Herod? Herod came, when he came on the scene, he expanded the temple greatly. He was trying to make it like Solomon. He spent 40 years 
building this another temple in the time of Jesus. It was huge. It had seven courts. It wasn't as glorious, but it was very big. But why, why were those temples not representative of the presence of the Lord? Well, I'll tell you why. Ark of the Covenant had disappeared. I'm sorry for Raiders of the Lost Ark. But they aren't going to find it. The Bible tells us when the next time the Ark of the Covenant is seen. And it's in the book of Revelation. It's not down here. God took it. Because of Israel's sin and constant rebellion and because, as Paul said, that the law was weak through the flesh. God had another plan. The book of Hebrews explains this all and I'm sorry I'm going to read because this is so beautiful. Hebrews chapter 9 explains why the ark had to disappear and why everything had to go. Now in the first covenant between God and Israel... There were regulations for worship and a sacred tent here on earth. There were two rooms in the tent. In the first room, there was a lampstand, a table, and the loaves of holy bread. On the table, this was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain. And behind the curtain was a second room called the most holy place. In that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant. Now in, in, in this reading... It sounds as if the altar of incense is behind the curtain. Now, anyone understand why there's a difficulty where that altar of incense is and the curtain? In the Old Testament, it seems it's in the holy place, not in the most holy place. In the description here, it puts it on the other side of the curtain. Why is that? Anyone? Remember what was the curtain representing? What was the curtain? What was on the curtain? Cherubim. Remember, the, the sanctuary was representing God's throne room. And in heaven, there isn't an actual curtain. What is there surrounding the throne? The angels. So on earth, the only way the angels could be represented was by a curtain that had the embroidery of the cherubims. They surround the throne. And so the placement of the golden altar is a bit tricky because they couldn't represent it exactly because on earth it's a curtain. But in heaven it's not a curtain, it's the angels. And that's why it seems to be a little different because that was right on the dividing line. And we do see the altar of incense again one more time in the book of Revelation. Anyway, the, the writer of Hebrews is explaining why all of this had to go. Inside the ark were the gold jar containing some manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant with the Ten Commandments written on them. Then on top, he says, the glorious cherubim were above the ark, their wings stretched out over the ark. Arks covered the place of atonement. But we cannot explain all of these things now. When these things were all in place, the priests went in every day. In fact, it was a 24-7 operation. There were some things they were to never let go out. They were to never let the brazen altar go out. They were to never let the candlestick go out. That means they had to have priests work in shifts all the time. It was a 24-7 operation. But only the high priest, once a year, could go into the very presence where God was. 
and always with blood, which he offered to God to cover his own sins, and the, the, people, the sins of the people have committed in ignorance. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but if you want the notes, I'll give you. But by these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the most holy place was not open. Only this one person who was high priest could actually be in the dwelling place of God. As long as this continued, we would be frozen under the law. But what this writer of Hebrews is explaining, that's why God had to take away the ark. Because there is only, and here's the, here's the, here's the key to this lesson, God only has one representative as a, at a time. There's only one representative. That's why when Jesus was on earth, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Not through Muhammad, not through Krishna, not through Buddha, not through Confucius. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only way. And that's why, and I'm not going to read this, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 9 is explaining that this had to go. That's why God took the Ark of the Covenant because the Ark of the Covenant represented his presence. That had to go so that the next dwelling place could come. That is why the earthly tent and everything in it, which were copies of things in heaven had to be purified by the blood of animals. But the real things in heaven had to be purified with far better sacrifices than the blood of animals. For Christ has entered into heaven itself. The Bible says we have an advocate with the Father. We have the best lawyer you can ever get. Amen. Amen. We have the best lawyer you can ever get. But you know something about a lawyer? You have to let him fight the case. You can't be interrupting him or changing the plan. You have to submit to your lawyer. If you will submit to Jesus, he will get you off. Amen. He will, he will have the case dismissed. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering, that's the old way, thou wouldest not. But a body thou hast prepared. All of these things in the Old Testament could only bring people this close. If you were a Levite, you could get into the holy place. If you were a Gentile, you had to stay outside. If you were the high priest, once a year, with some trembling, you could go behind that last curtain with the sacrifice and sprinkle the blood. And if, if you were accepted, you would live till the next year. But God had provided a new way. That's why when the angels came and said, peace on earth, goodwill towards men, Galatians 4, 4 says, but when the fullness of time, you know, as I've been teaching, we want stuff now. Give me patience and give it to me now. But God always does things in his own time. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. And in Hebrews 10.20 it says, By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. See, God's dwelling place now was no longer going to be even in an ark, in a tent, or in, in a temple. Isaiah 77 verse 14 prophesied, Therefore, the Lord himself... See, this goes back to what Abraham said. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
So after the temple disappeared and the Ark of the Covenant went out the way, it made room for another manifestation and dwelling place on earth. Jesus in John 2.19 gave them a little hint. Jesus said unto them, destroy this temple. They thought he was talking about Herod's temple. They didn't realize who it was standing in front of them. Just as he had said to the woman by the well, he said, if you knew. You know how many times God is standing right there with us. And we look in for somewhere else. You know, she was looking for someone to give her water. She didn't realize that the king of kings, the creator of the universe, was standing right there. He said, if you knew. Many times we're going through tribulations and trials. And right there, even though we can't see it because we don't realize it. And we're not walking into Right there, he said, if you knew who it was who was standing here, you would rather ask of me and I would give to you rivers of living water and you would never thirst again. At least the lady had, had the sense to say, okay, give, give me, I want it, I want this water. You see, Jesus became the dwelling place. Titus says, great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh. In John, I think, uh, 1244, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And then they wanted to stone him. Who are you? You're not even 50. You're, you're, you're only about 30 something. How can you say you're before Abraham? He said, Abraham was glad and rejoiced to see my day. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Let's read that same story, that, that, that woman that Jesus was having a discussion with, she started to talk with him and she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And he say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when he shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem. Why did he say that? Because the temple was there. Why did he say, even Jerusalem, you, that's not the place. You know why? Because behind the curtain was a fake ark. The real ark had disappeared. There was no ark. The ark was standing in front of her. The ark was, the dwelling place of God was standing right in front of her. He says, ye worship, ye know not. What? We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. You know, God will come looking for you if you are a true worshiper. You won't have to go looking for God. The Bible says he's looking for true worshipers. That's probably greater than any kind of prayer, just to start thanking God. Lord, I love you. I worship you. Not because you've done anything for me, but because of who you are. The angel will, will have to kind of look back and say, what's going on here? We need to come investigate this. Someone is worshiping. Someone is lifting up the name of Jesus. So the revelation of who Jesus was and why the law and the ark had to disappear is given in Hebrews. But Jesus makes it explicit to the next step. See, he said that he had to go for the next step, the next manifestation. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. 
it is expedient for you that I go away. Because as long as he was there, now they get, they get to see him. But it's only those who could actually get to see him. Sometimes he went in crowds and the crowds were thousands. And they still couldn't get to him. But that wasn't where it, God wanted it to end. He said, but if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, because remember what I said, there's only one manifestation of God on the earth at one time. So Jesus was that manifestation. He was explaining why he had to go. Because if he went, then he could multiply. The Bible speaks that he would bring many sons to glory. Because when he said it's finished, Father, receive ye my spirit. And then 50 days later, in Acts 2, it says that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, there came a sound. Now that one spirit is going to be multiplied, just like the barley loaves, remember? Was broken. There was only enough for one little lad. But once it was given to Jesus, and he blessed it, multiplied. Said, I will pour out of my spirit into all flesh. And now we all can be the dwelling place. If you could stand with me. If you could stand with me. Now we can all be the dwelling place. Isn't that awesome? You don't have to go to a priest. You don't have to go look behind the curtain. But anytime you cry out in faith believing, you have the dwelling place. You have the Father with you. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm going to be with you to the end, even to the end of the world. So the answer to the fifth dwelling place is because we are the fifth dwelling place. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you, then you are the fifth dwelling place. So there's only one dwelling place on earth at each time. But now it's in all of us. Hebrews 9, 8, the Holy Ghost thus signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet, yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. And that's why in Jeremiah 3.16, God prophesied there would be a time when they would say, No more the ark of the covenant of the Lord, neither shall it come into mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it. See, people are talking about them building a temple. Even if they build a temple, it's not going to be the dwelling place not until he sits in the throne in Jerusalem. But right now, we have the opportunity to make him the Lord of our lives. Paul said, know ye not that you are the temple of the living God? Think about that. Think about what that means and how we should treat the temple of the living God. In the temple, they had to consecrate it. We read that they had to take seven days just consecrating it. Know ye not that ye are the temple of the living God. We are now the dwelling place. We are now the, one, the place from where God should be able to minister to others. That's what God has called us. He said through his suffering he would bring many sons to glory. So now instead of one son of God, everyone that is filled with the Spirit... And born of the water is now a child of the king. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And this is why the ark had to disappear. Because Jesus himself now was the representation of that ark. And we can see how God literally fulfilled that at the resurrection. Because when he 
resurrected and she went in, Peter went in, what did they see at the head and at the foot? You had two angels over the place where he was lying. In other words, the mercy seat. The Bible says he hath now sat down. He's now sat down. That's why he has become the propitiation. He has become our mercy seat. He is the one where the blood is sprinkled so that we can still have life. That we can be forgiven. That we can be made whole. That his grace covers us. But there is coming a time when that will be finished. And so, for now, the door is still open. That's why the Bible says we should make our calling an election sure. While it is day, while it is time, the Bible speaks about that. Amen? So, Christ had to leave to allow the fifth representation. And now, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Know ye not that ye, me and you, are the temple of the living God, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. There's only one last thing now left to be done. The new bodies. Just like Jesus, six days before he was arrested, went up to the Mount of Transfiguration and he unveiled the flesh. And he was back to being like what Son of God looks like. That's the last part we're waiting for. Romans 8.20 says, The whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain. To wit, waiting for what? The revelation. That's the bodily revelation of the children of God. Amen. God has got a new body for us. A glorified body. Not a terrestrial body. That is not subject to temptation. Not subject to pain. Not subject to, to, to suffering. All we have to do is to remember that right now we are the dwelling place. Amen. If you could bow your hearts with me. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word tonight. Let it find good soil. Let it encourage us. Let it edify us as we look for your soon coming. Help us to remember, Lord, that now we are the place to minister to others through your spirit. Lord, we thank you for all you're doing, Lord God, for your being the advocate, our high priest. Hallelujah. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We ask for your covering tonight, Lord Jesus. Help us, O oh God, to walk faithfully and worthy of the calling. And we give you the praise and the glory in Jesus name. Let's give God a praise offering tonight. Hallelujah.